Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be in 2 Samuel 9 today. It's in uh, page 260 in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. My wife Madison and I recently got back from a trip to Europe. And uh, when we travel, she's kind of trained my instincts to avoid anything that looks touristy. So we love towns and, and restaurants not often frequented by visitors. Uh, e- you know, even when we drive, we'll turn off major highways on our maps so that we can go on these like windy back roads. Because uh, what we've found is uh, when we take a side road, we often stumble upon something that's better than we could have even planned. And uh, similarly, the Bible has highways and interstates that we all know, like Genesis 1 and Psalm 23, Romans 8, so on. But there's a side road in 2 Samuel 9 that is, has so much promise, so much treasure if we just go down it. That's how 2 Samuel 9 feels to me. It's a, it's a gem of a story, and it's a shame that it's not popularized in our children's books And it's probably because one of the main character's names is Mephibosheth, which is like four syllables long, 12 letters. It's not John Paul. I I don't even know if like a two-year-old could say, I want to read the story of Mephibosheth. So I think that's why it's not in the children's books, but it's, I love the story because the light of the gospel shines so brightly in it. It's a story about a powerful king who shows kindness to a vulnerable enemy. And in this story, we not only see King David's kindness, but we actually look through David and see the kindness and the warmth and the affection that our king has given us, who were once his enemies, but now dine with him at his table. I'll read through verse 8. Hear what Holy Scripture says. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant 
that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it is your will that all should come to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Sustain our witness to the gospel that all may know the power of your forgiveness and the hope of your resurrection. Oh Lord, open the word to us now, Holy Spirit. Do the work that only you can do through the words that I'll say. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's, it's clear right from the first verse that we are transported back into a, a different time. The story just like, it smells ancient, right? Like it, it looks old. We're breathing the atmosphere of a different planet here. So what's going on? Well, well, interestingly, 2 Samuel 9 is sandwiched in between two chapters that list out David's military conquests, which tells you something about the importance of this story, that it interrupts a list of military victories, and it's a story about the king showing kindness to one of his political enemies. We are at the peak of David's prime. I love sports, and one thing you hear analysts always talk about <clears throat> is when someone's in their prime. It's like always debated. And when someone's in their prime, they're not necessarily a rookie anymore. They're a veteran, but they're also not old yet. They're not declining. They still have that fountain of youth and vigor and ambition to do more. And that's really David in this moment. He's probably only 30 years old, and yet his kingdom is already at rest. The tribes of Israel are united. There's no real threat to his throne. And Israel has recently expanded their territories into the surrounding regions. David still mounts his own horse. He still puts on his own armor. He straps his own sword to the side. And he, and he leads armies into battles on the front lines. Unlike when he's old and others go and fight his battles. He's, he's writing psalms. He's having children, his kingdom's at peace. And two chapters earlier, in chapter 7, we have one of the most important parts of the whole Bible. Where God promises David that he will never lack a son to sit on his throne. His royal house will continue forever and his kingdom will endure through every age. And we know that from the rest of the Bible, that's fulfilled in his greater son, Jesus so what do we find King David doing on the top of the world? Well, he remembers a commitment that he made uh, to a friend. More than a commitment, an actual covenant. So look at verse 1. He asks, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's a remarkable question. Because in the ancient world, when there's a regime change and a new house takes the throne, things don't usually like go too well for the past house. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have peaceful elections every four years and a peaceful exchange of power. What would often happen is you would extinguish every living descendant from the previous king so that there were no rival threats to your throne. And that's what makes this story so fascinating because it's likely that Mephibosheth would have been third in line to the throne of Israel. You have Saul, his eldest son is Jonathan, and then Jonathan's son is Mephibosheth. 
But here, David is not asking, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that he may execute them? He's asking, is there anyone left that I may show him kindness? Why would he ask such a thing? Well, if you remember, Jonathan, as I said, was Saul's son. And he was David's best friend when David served in the court of King Saul. Uh, if you, you probably remember the story of Saul becomes extremely jealous of David and he tries to kill him. And so Jonathan helps David escape unharmed. But before he lets David go, he makes him promise something. You see, Jonathan knows that the Lord has given the kingdom of Israel to David. He knows that he won't inherit the throne and that Saul's house is going to fall. And so he asks David, he says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember my offspring? When I die, will you let my sons and their sons and their sons live? And David gives him his word. And then like 15 years or so later, here we are with David remembering the kindness he's going to show Jonathan's offspring. And David's desire to show kindness brings us to the first of four virtues King David displays that I want to focus on this morning. We'll move through the text looking at these four virtues because in them we see them actually shining more fully and brightly in the glory of our Lord Jesus who is not only king of Israel but king over the heavens and all the earth. So the first of the four, the king's loyalty the king's loyalty. When David asks, when he says he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, it's, it's more than merely wanting to be nice. It's not quite what he's getting at. That word kindness means something more like steadfast love. It's, it's not merely a feeling or an emotion. It's an action that's taken to benefit someone in need. It signifies a sense of loyalty. Faithfulness, love, kindness, compassion. It's the same language that God uses towards us. And David, after all these years, remembered his covenant with Jonathan. And and it makes us think, doesn't it, Christian, that after all these years, God still remembers his covenant that he made with us. A covenant that allows us to live A covenant that gives us eternal life and binds us forever into the kingdom of Jesus. Whose steadfast love keeps and maintains us. He remembers the covenant that his son bled for. And it is this covenant that is our only refuge, our only peace, our only comfort against the attacks of the evil one. I think when it comes to this, we can, we can often be tempted in two ways. Uh, the first way is to think that God will forget us or forget his promises. You know, that's an easy fix, though. I mean, just think, parents, could you, who are far less than God, ever forget your children? And if you couldn't forget your children, how much more God, who is far greater than you, could he forget his children? Could the very one who has engraven your names on the palms of his hand now forget you? Can the very one who registers your name in the book of, a, of, the book of life with his own pen now forget you? Friends, don't make God into your own image. He is not a man that he should change his mind or that he should forget 
The great shepherd of Israel is is in no danger of forgetting his own flock. But it's us who are his sheep that often wander and forget him. And as the great shepherd, he has to chase us. And he gives us means of grace, like this morning, to remember him by. That's the first way that you might forget his promises. The second way we can be tempted is on the other side of the scale. You're not worried that God's going to forget you. You're actually worried that he kind of remembers you too much and he's angry with you. You know, that's an interesting one because it's not entirely wrong. Whether or not God is angry with you depends upon where you stand in relationship to him. God does remember sins for all those outside of Christ. He knows every secret thought that has ever entered your mind. He knows everything that you would ever be ashamed of to tell somebody. He sees in the darkness and no evil deed is hidden from his sight. I mean, just think every day God sees every single wicked deed that occurs on the face of the planet. Every minute of every day, he sees husbands cheating on their wives. He sees babies murdered at what's supposed to be a clinic. He sees governments being corrupt at the highest levels and oppressing those that are beneath them. Every day he sees families torn apart by divorce, which is why David says in Psalm 7 that he is a God who feels indignation every single day. And if that seems harsh to you, might it be because we have too naive and too little a view of sin and the havoc that it wreaks upon mankind? Do you have a category in your mind for God having indignation every day? Or is your God merely like a nice, kindly old man that doesn't get upset, that doesn't want to offend, and is just kind of passive? I want a God who is angered by injustice and evil. I want a God who will right every wrong and punish those who do evil, or else how could God be really just? If you are outside of Christ, outside of his covenant, outside of his promises, there is nothing more scary in the world than a God who is just. Because a just God remembers sins and he will carry out the sentence of punishment for them. The Psalms go on. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. And all it would take for you to be plunged into the lake of fire for eternity would be the mere slip of the bowstring between his fingers. And if you are here and trusting in your own works, your good works that you'll get to heaven by, you think that your church going or your tithing or your baptism or, or who your parents are or anything outside of the finished work of Christ applied on your behalf, if you think that will keep you out of hell, hear these sobering words 
that shocked me so many years ago when I read them from a preacher. All your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. But the good news for you is that the Lord delights to show mercy. The Lord delights to show forgiveness. Nothing prohibits you from coming to God except for your own sinfulness. The door of salvation is wide open for you. Give it all to the Lord who is both just, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Today, you can go home tonight and rest your head on your pillow, knowing that you have all the comfort, all the refuge, all the peace of this covenant. If you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. When your life is over. You don't want to sink into hell looking up at the door that you could have walked through for so many years. But for all those in Christ, in the covenant, in his promises, whose sins have been paid for by the son of God himself on the cross. This is what God says to you. I am he. Who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins anymore. As far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. What kindness. What mercy and steadfast love and loyalty. That God would see every one of my sins. Every one of my failings, every one of my faults, and in the face of them, forgive me. He is a God who remembers every sin, but for his own sake and for our sake and for his glory, he casts them into the farthest sea. A sea that is blood with, red with the blood of a savior. A sea that our sins are forgotten in. Christian, don't remember sins That God has forgotten. We'll look at verse 2 and 3 with me. David's officials summon a man named Ziba. Who is a servant in the house of Saul. And David asked him who is left of Jonathan's house. And look at Ziba's reply in verse 3. He says... There is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. David has to pull more detail out of a reluctant Ziba. And he asks, well, where is he? And Ziba replies, saying that he's in a town called Lodabar, which literally translates to not a place. It's like saying he's in the middle of nowhere. And did you notice that Ziba doesn't even name Mephibosheth? He just calls him a son of Jonathan, and he immediately offers up information that Mephibosheth is crippled, perhaps with the aim of persuading David to just let this whole thing go. You don't want to show that guy kindness. He thinks it's more important to tell David Mephibosheth's condition than his own name. 
Well, well, earlier in 2 Samuel, I believe it's in chapter 4, we find out how, how Mephibosheth became disabled. Uh, his uncle, Ishbosheth, had claimed the throne after Saul died. And he was in a long war with David over who would become king over all Israel. And, and one day, news reached Ishbosheth that his, the commander of his army had been killed. It was the final blow before Ishbosheth would be murdered himself. And all this chaos breaks out in Israel. And, and Mephibosheth, who's five years old at the time, when all this took place, in the chaotic aftermath, his nurse took him in her arms and she fled for safety. But in her haste, she dropped him. And the drop must have been so bad because it injured his legs so much so that he couldn't use them the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he would be forced to be dependent on others, all because his nurse dropped him when he was five. And now his father's dead, his grandfather's dead, his uncle's dead, and all his house has fallen. Years go by, and instead of living in a palace and inheriting all the wealth that would have been his, he's now in Lodabar, which literally means not a place. I mean, this guy has fallen from the top to the bottom before he even had a chance. And now he's got a young son even. So years go by, David finds him, and he brings him from Jerusalem. And I wonder what that was like to be Mephibosheth, you know, sitting at your house, and you hear like a knock on the door. And it's David's men on horses. And they're saying, get out here, get your stuff, we're going to Jerusalem. And it's not, a, it's not a, a short journey, mind you. No doubt fear went through his mind, confusion, anxiety, perhaps dreading that he would die. But he makes the long journey and at last he comes upon David's palace in Jerusalem. Well, as I mentioned earlier, when, when Madison and I did go to uh, Europe, we... What else do you do in Europe but see really cool palaces? So when we were in Edinburgh, we went to the palace of Holyrood House, which is this just ornate, beautiful thing. And what I found what interesting when we walked through it is that when you go into a palace, there's like multiple rooms before you even hit the king's chambers. So you would go in, and the first room would just be ornate and gorgeous, and then you would be ushered into the next room, and it would get even more lavish and more beautiful and more ornate. And then you go into the next room and maybe there's, there's a sword on the wall and then more paintings and then maybe like a replica throne. And then you go into the next room and then you're still not to the king. And each room is designed to intimidate or to inspire awe or maybe a little bit of both as you go to meet the king in the last room. And he's waiting for you. It, it inspires, the, it shows the gravity of who you're meeting and I imagine Mephibosheth being like carried or wheeled into David's palace, going through multiple rooms as he gets closer to the king, not knowing what his fate would be. And perhaps he even, you know, comes upon like a great hall where David's sitting in the middle on a golden throne and his robes are draped down. And, and you can imagine the, the pitiful scene where Mephibosheth, who has no use of his legs, somehow gets on the ground face down in front of the throne, spreads his arms out and pays homage to him. And unlike Ziba, David actually says his name. David says Mephibosheth. And you can probably hear a muffled, trembling voice saying, behold, I am your servant, as he waits to hear what the next words are. 
And then what a flood of relief it must have been to hear these words from David. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth, who was once forgotten, was now remembered. Once dishonored, was, was now honored. And once fatherless, now adopted. And these are the blessings of those who have received grace. So we come to the second virtue of King David, the king's grace. You see, David doesn't just show loyalty to the previous promise and just lets Mephibosheth live. He actually goes above and beyond and shows even more grace by restoring lands to him and doing the unthinkable thing of allowing Mephibosheth, an enemy, to be brought into the royal court and live with him and actually eat every single meal with the king, to be treated as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth realizes the gravity of what's just taken place. That's why he answers like this. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Interestingly, those are the same words that David used of King Saul on one of the mountains. He said, why are you chasing after a dead dog? But you see Mephibosheth answer wisely. He knew that he deserved death from the king if all went according to plan as normal, but he receives life. He deserved exile, but he actually now receives a home. And Mephibosheth's answer to David is the answer of every sinner who has received grace from King Jesus. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It sounds a lot like what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Where would we be if the king had not sought us out? If he had not brought us into his kingdom? If he had not sat us at his table? When we see the depravity of the human heart and know that God still desires to give us a seat at his table and a grand inheritance, it should make us marvel at the breadth, the depth, the height, the width of his grace And the patience and kindness he has towards sinners like us. Towards dead dogs like us. You see, God lavishes his grace upon us. In a way that makes angels marvel. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And he delights to show us grace. Well, look at verse 9 with me. I'm going to read the rest of the story. And we'll look at the third virtue of David. So we've seen David's loyalty, David's grace. And now we're going to look at David's provision, the king's provision. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your father, or, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. David now provides for every physical and financial need of Mephibosheth. Uh, He orders Ziba to till the lands that are now Mephibosheth's that were once Saul's. And Ziba's job with his 15 sons and 20 servants would be to bring the produce into Mephibosheth. Maybe to sell it in the markets and bring the, uh, the uh, money to Mephibosheth. But you notice Mephibosheth is provided for by David. So he doesn't need anything from the lands because he has it in Jerusalem. So David's setting his house up, not only for this generation, but for the next one and the next one and the next one to show kindness to Jonathan. David's provision reflects the king, the king's provision towards us in salvation, not only for our physical needs, but for our spiritual ones. You know, there's, there's often so much of a focus on the Lord's grace to justify us that we often underemphasize his grace to sanctify us. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it speaks of the entire Christian life, not just the moment of your conversion. So the Lord has saved you at the cross. He is saving us by making us holy and he will save us at the last day when he raises us from the dead. So just a, just a soft warning, be careful when you speak about the greatness of forgiveness that you also speak about the greatness of holiness. Not as a means to make us right with God, but to show that we are right with God. God saves us so that he might make, make us holy like his son. Here's how the apostle Paul puts it. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So that part speaks about his death. But listen for Paul's reason why he gave himself up to death. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The spirit of Christ is laboring even now, his work continues today to prepare us for the day when he returns where the church will be found as a bride adorned for her husband with a beauty and a splendor that only the Lord provides. Another aspect of David's provision for Mephibosheth that points to Christ and is an example actually to us is his good use of authority. I wonder if you picked up on that. He uses the powers that God gave him as king to bless and to care and to restore and to love those beneath him. David is here acting out what his dying words were. On his deathbed, David said this. 
When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David uses this authority to bless Mephibosheth and his family. He uses his authority as king to order the lands to return to him. And it's only because he has this authority that he can tell Ziba what to do, to go bless Mephibosheth. You see, the the good use of authority used in the fear of the Lord, it actually leads to flourishing. Bad authority, the bad use of authority, can lead to some of the deepest wounds that we'll ever receive. But the bad use of a good thing does not make the thing itself bad. The corruption of the good thing is what is bad. It's like fire. It's dangerous or it's very comforting. So it is with authority. And there is within mankind a kind of sinful impulse to want to throw off authority and be the captain of our own lives and think that we won't make a wreck of it. Uh, In the garden, Adam and Eve threw off the limits that God had placed upon them so that they might decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. The Israelites in the wilderness threw off God's law, threw off his rule, and adopted other gods to worship. The evil kings of Israel threw off God's law as well, and they did not govern in the fear of the Lord, and it plunged Israel into exile. Uh, In our culture today, even, the assumption is almost always that authority is bad. Authority suppresses self-expression and individualism. Authority is inherently oppressive and it does violence to our self-autonomy. Or authority just always corrupts. One example you can see this in is just think about all the movies that came out in the 90s and the 2000s. And even today, where like the villain is the overbearing parent or the killjoy disciplinarian at school. And the hero is always like the young, naive kid who doesn't want to be told no. And all the motives of a young child are assumed to be pure and good until the disciplinarian just shoves them down. It's like the plot of so many movies. It's what ruined Dead Poets Society for me. The movies, they never show a kind authority. They never show an authority that serves others. It's always just like a grumpy person who wants to put other people down. But in the Bible, when authority is used in the fear of God, it leads to flourishing and not destruction. You see, God has has actually designed humanity to have authority structures. Think of governments. They have authority over its citizens to promote the common good. The congregation of a church has authority over one another to protect the witness of the church and its purity. The pastors have authority that you've given them to exhort you, to rebuke you, to encourage you in the word. Parents have authority over their children to raise them in the fear of the Lord that they might walk in all his ways. Husbands have authority over their wives to strengthen them, to cherish them, to build them up in Christ and love them as their own bodies. Let me especially encourage husbands here to exercise the authority God has given you as the head of your house to bless those under your care. 
It seems that the culture's sharpest arrows are always aimed at husbands. But realize that your authority, when used in the fear of the Lord, is a good thing. Your role as head is, is not to be lorded over your wife and your children to make life easier for you. Or to just have them do whatever you say without question. No, your authority is given by God in order to serve them, to protect, to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen, to present them wholly in the Lord. And for you to be an example to your wife and to your kids, because you will be judged on the last day for how you managed your own household. But your authority, practically speaking, is only as good as you cultivate it. Don't complain or grumble that your wife doesn't follow your lead. Instead, be the man that she wants to follow. Don't be like Adam who blames his wife in the garden. Take responsibility. Lead your household in holiness by the Holy Spirit and be a man. Nothing, though, is more repulsive than a man who lacks sense who is short-tempered, proud, thinks he has it figured out, and then weaponizes that authority to short-circuit the hard work of earning it. But husbands, kill your sin and, and pursue the Lord with all your strength so that your wife and your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids may be blessed in the Lord that you could have a godly heritage and a godly legacy. And wives, support your husbands in this. Because their flourishing is actually your flourishing. And, and try to see that God has given them to you as a gift to, to guide you, to love you, to support and prop you up as his beloved queen. I, I love how um, Matthew Henry puts this because he's so careful. He's so attentive to the text and he's so sensitive to the issue. Listen to this. He says, women were created from the rib of a man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. And if you find that your husband is none of those things, pray for him. The Lord can do mighty things through prayer. And your father in heaven hears you. I think of the epistle from Peter when he says, he says to win over your husbands by your holiness, by your pure and honorable conduct. A man who has no authority but himself is sure to make a shipwreck of his life. But friends, good authority is, enri is enriching to all those who are served by it. The Lord has provided for us abundantly, and we see that in David here. Let's look at the last virtue, uh, the king's adoption, the fourth one, the king's loyalty, the king's grace, the king's provision, and now the king's adoption. Perhaps the brightest way the gospel shines in the story is seen in the latter half of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David takes him in and provides for him like an own father would. He adopts him into his family. And adoption is central to a right understanding of the gospel. And it's one of the most comforting too. 
uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. It's one of the greatest books of the last century. Go find it. I think someone bought it in our bookstall, so I'll buy another one. Knowing God, he describes adoption like this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. When God's spirit makes us alive in Christ, a great shift takes place. We, who were born into this world sinners, wholly devoid of all good and depraved in heart and mind, we are now actually made into saints because of what Christ Jesus has done. So though we were once alienated from God and were children of wrath, prepared for destruction in the gospel, God becomes our father and we become his children. And this is God's love for us. Listen to how the apostle John puts it. See what kind, that word's crucial, see what kind of love the father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. So we are. He does not give to us a generic love. A kind of well-wishing that you might give to a stranger on the street or a distant friend. No, he gives us the kind of love that a father or a mother has for their child. A love that cannot be shaken or removed due to circumstance. What a comfort that is. My, uh, my own dad grew up without a biological father. Uh, his dad left the house when he was two years old. And the first time he met him was at his college graduation when he showed up unannounced and asked for money. Uh, but when my dad was in high school, he had a number of men who stood in the gap uh, in that role. One of them was a band director named Barry. And Barry mentored my dad through high school. And uh, there were times when he would, you know, pull him aside and kind of lay into him like a father would because he saw the potential my dad had. And he also saw the need uh, in a rough house. Well, my dad went off to college. Uh, He majored in music. And his first job, coincidentally, happened to be the orchestra director at a high school where Barry was the band director. So they got to work together. And uh, he was actually telling me, I was on a family vacation these past few days, and he was telling me out on the deck that... uh, that Barry told the principal, he stuck his neck out and said, if this guy doesn't pan out, you can fire me too. That's the kind of grace that he showed him. Well, I remember when Barry died uh, at his funeral, my dad was speaking and he told a story about how he was once at his house and his wife made the offhand remark and referred to my dad as one of Barry's sons. And it was just an offhand remark, but for the first time in his life, someone claimed him as a son. Some, he was seen as somebody's own son and not fatherless. And in the gospel, God the Father claims us as his sons and daughters, though we may not have any earthly father. He actually puts his name upon us and says, you are mine. And when we become children of God and a a part of his family, all the blessings secured for us by Christ in the new covenant are made free and open to us, just like all the blessings that David gave 
Mephibosheth. We have access to our father's throne like a child that may barge into his dad's office, though he may be the CEO of a major company, and he can do it just because it's his dad. Kids don't need a secretary. They can just run by. And so Christians don't need a secretary to the Lord. You can go straight to him and barge into his throne room and cry, Abba, Father. We are pitied by him, protected, provided for, disciplined by him as a father, but never cast off, sealed to the day of redemption to inherit all the promises that are ours. He puts his own name upon us. And the only reason we are brought into his family is because of what Christ has done. Consider this. Jesus is the one who is loyal to his promises. Jesus is the one who, by his grace, brings us from Lodabar to dine with him in the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who, by his generous provision, gives us a better inheritance than the one we squandered. And Jesus is the one who, by his adoption, makes us sons and daughters of God. And at the last day, the Bible says that many will come from east and west to recline at the king's table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as one of his sons, a prince and a princess of heaven. That's the gospel. And when we feast in the house of Zion, like we sung, with all the saints and with all the angels, clothed in splendor, with bodies imperishable, we will have a seat at the table, not because we deserved it, or not because we earned it, but we will have a seat at the table because we are forgiven, and we are cared for as a son and a daughter of the king. Let's pray. Lord, what love that you would look upon us and call us your own. That you would see everything we've done against you and you provide for us an atonement, a sacrifice to stand in our place and take the penalty that we deserved. Oh Lord, I pray that all those here who find themselves outside of Christ might today be moved by your spirit to put their trust and their hope in you, to repent of their former life and trust in the Lord that you are making all things new, even them. And for those you set your seal upon, you will keep unto the end. Oh Lord, let this be our comfort this week, this day, when troubles come, when bad news comes, when we're just tired, or when we're happy and rejoicing, or when we're waiting for something. Lord, help us be content where we are because we know where we stand with you. Comfort us by your promises. Sustain us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.